What stones do you need rolled away today? How do you feel like you're still in a tomb? Half alive, perhaps, wanting to get out. You can see part of the outside, but you just feel stuck. It might be your marriage. It might be not having a marriage. It might be your children. It might be not having children. It might be the past 15 months about to pull your hair out or about to rip somebody's head off. I felt like that at times. Jesus still rolls stones away. And we're called to actually live with those kinds of expectations. It's not a pipe dream. Jesus still raises the dead. Jesus still rolls stones. And we're to hang on to that expectation no matter what happens. We're going to talk this morning in 1 Peter about a living hope. Turn in 1 Peter chapter 1. I've preached so many. This is my 32nd Easter at Oak Mountain. I've preached so many Easter sermons from the Gospels. And I love the Gospels. But to give your ears a rest and to cause me to be even more engaged in the text, I like to switch on Easter at times from more traditional texts. Now, this is still focused on the resurrection, but it'll give us a very unique view And we sang earlier about Christ being our living hope. And that's what Peter writes about in 1 Peter 1. Another way to put that is that we are to have a living hope seen as great expectations. And when I utter those words, you probably remember the classic book by Charles Dickens called Great Expectations. If you've not read it, it is seen by many as being Dickens' most influential novel. Let me tell you a little bit about it. It's about a young boy named Pip, and he's adopted by his uh, cruel older sister. She never treats him uh, well, never speaks a good word to him, and he grows up in his young life with no expectations and no dreams at all. Then he happens to meet various people, and he begins to gain expectations of life. One of those expectations, the expectation of love. He meets a young woman, but this young woman's mother was herself jilted at the altar. And and she raises this girl that Pip loves to actually uh, wreak havoc and pain on people's lives just to dull her own pain. And so the great expectation of Pip finding love is dashed. Well, then he has the great expectation, if I just made some money, maybe I could win Estella's hand. And he gets some money, anonymously. And he thinks maybe Estella and her mom, maybe their heart has changed. And so he has this great expectation that things are getting better. Well, he finds out that the money wasn't from them at all, but from another anonymous benefactor. And another great expectation is dashed. Then he has the great expectation, maybe I could use the money and become an English gentleman. And then I'd win Estella's love. And he becomes an English gentleman, but also loses his money. 
and another great expectation is dashed. As a matter of fact, the theme of the whole book is every great expectation Pip has is dashed. And he ends up a broken man. Doesn't sound like a fun story, does it? But I think why it's so popular among readers is because we all can relate. We all live in a broken world and we all develop great expectations. And yet, sadly, many of our great expectations are grounded in midair with nothing substantive behind them. Some of us has great expectations of our marriages and you're actually trying to feel alive and come alive through your marriage. Your marriage was never meant to bear that kind of weight. And it'll break you or break your marriage. Some of us have put our great expectations in our children, hoping that through them we'll experience some significance but your children were never meant to bear that kind of weight. And your great expectations will crush them and break you. Maybe your great expectations is finding significance and success in your vocation. Work is of God, but it was never meant to bear that weight. And if your great expectations are in your vocation, it will break you. Many of us have great expectations in financial stability, making it to retirement. Your health could fail tomorrow, and retirement could be a crushing disappointment. We are right to have great expectations. But it is deadly to have those expectations misplaced in the wrong things. Peter writes to Christians from all over the Roman Empire who were having their great expectations dashed. They were following Christ, thinking that in Christ they would find comfort and prosperity and health and wealth. And they were finding instead persecution and death and rejection. And Peter writes, hang on to great expectations, but only those which are related to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is our only living hope. And keep your great expectations not in circumstances or events, but related to who Jesus is, your walk with him, your faith in him, your love for him, your service of him. That's where our great expectations will never be disappointed. And so Peter writes, 1 Peter 1, to reorient our great expectations. We are to have them, but unlike Pip, they need to be in the right places. Let's all stand out of reverence for God's word. Follow along as I read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. This is God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, in this salvation, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. May God bless the hearing and teaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. This is God's word. He gave it to us because he loves us. And he longs for us to have great expectations that never disappoint. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would kindly yet powerfully Send your Holy Spirit upon this place. Anoint the teaching of your word and anoint our hearts and our ears that we might behold, believe, and act upon wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So Peter talks to us this morning about a living hope. Another word for a living hope are great expectations. Peter calls us to great expectations that flow out of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. First of all, hang on to great expectations in times of failure. You ever feel like a failure? Can I just let you know a secret? I feel like a failure every single Sunday afternoon. I'm not joking. Every single Sunday afternoon, I leave this pulpit and I feel like a failure, like I just didn't come through. We all feel like failure sometimes, whether it's as a spouse or as a friend in our vocations, with our parenting. Well, Peter felt like a failure too. And oh, by the way, he had good reason to. He did fail. Remember, Peter said, though all the rest of these jokers around you fail you, I never will. And then Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, before this day is over, before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. And I know how I would have reacted to that because I'm a pretty competitive guy. I would have said, I wouldn't have said it out loud out of respect for Jesus. Of course, then I'd be reminded that he knows my thoughts. But I'd already thought it, so I'm toast. And I would have thought, 
I'll show you. But Peter didn't show Jesus. He even called down curses upon himself as proof that he had no idea who Jesus was. And so look how Jesus begins, or look how Peter begins then this passage. Blessed be, verse 3, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Christ to Peter reminded him of sweet, daily, moment-by-moment mercy. That failures were not fatal. That Jesus comes to failures. Because if Jesus didn't come to failures, there'd be nobody for him to come to. Jesus shows mercy. Remember the difference between mercy and grace? Mercy is not getting what your sins deserve. Grace are blessings received that we don't deserve. Grace is receiving what you don't deserve. Mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. And Peter is so filled with thankfulness for God's mercy that he cries out in exclamation, Praise be to God! Blessed be the God of mercy! When's the last time you really cried out with energy and passion, Praise be to you, God, for your mercy! You see, it's only when we really feel the depth of our failure and what we deserve in light of our failure that we get excited about mercy. When is the last time you've been really excited about mercy? Yet God says it is one of the great expectations of the Christian life in failure. Think of all the biblical characters. They all failed. Abraham, David, Jonah, Peter, even John, who didn't deny Christ that we know of, tried to call down thunder and lightning on somebody just because they weren't doing it the way John wanted to see it done. There's a gracious man. We're all failures. And yet, how do we handle failure? Shame, guilt, self-condemnation. There's nothing more demotivating to the Christian life than shame and guilt and self-condemnation. As a matter of fact, I will tell you, there's nothing that will make you more susceptible to sin than shame and guilt and self-condemnation. Because the pain of shame and guilt and self-condemnation will become so great, apart from mercy, that you'll look for some sin to engage in just to experience relief. You're most susceptible to temptation when you feel like a failure and don't turn to mercy. Peter goes on to say, we're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Born again means that, that we have a new identity, a new standing before God, that Christ credits his own obedience and righteousness to our lives and we're adopted into God's family so that we're beloved, we're delighted in, 
We're right with God. He treats us as if we've never sinned or even been sinners. And that is if we were as perfectly obedient as Jesus was obedient for us. That's mercy and grace. And we're to hang on to the expectation in times of failure of mercy. Lamentations 3 verse 23. His mercies are new every morning. And then in verse 4, Peter talks about an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. Now, Peter is deliberately contrasting the Old Testament church's inheritance, which was the promised land, with the New Testament church's inheritance, which is all of our blessings promised through the resurrection, new life, new standing, new power, new destiny, new future, new heavens, new earth. And he says, Israel's promised land, it wasn't imperishable. As a matter of fact, it was conquered many times by the Romans, by the Babylonians. Israel's inheritance isn't unfading. They lost it. It wasn't undefiled. Conquerors brought in their idols and Israel commingled and they raised up idols as well. But God says, no matter where you've failed, no matter how many times you've failed, no matter how far you have fallen, your inheritance is secure because it was purchased by Christ and is being reserved in heaven for you. You see, failure for the Christian is not fatal. Think of the first Easter night. Peter, all the disciples, except for Thomas, gathered in a room. Why were they gathered there? Because they were petrified. They thought they were next. They killed Jesus. Now, (coughs) excuse me, They're going to come after them. But even worse than fearing death, they were so distressed and discouraged and ashamed of their failure. Three years they invested. More accurately, three years Jesus invested in them. And in his hour of need, They all let him down. So how's Jesus going to respond to failures? Well, you know the rest of the story. In his glorified, resurrected body, he walks through the wall. Perhaps even looks first at Peter. And says, peace be with you. See, so many people think that when God meets a failure, he does one of these. Taps his foot, wags his head, turns around, his veins are popping, he's red, about ready to blow his top. No. Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I delight in mercy. Not sacrifice, not penance, not guilt, not shame. 
I desire mercy. How have you failed over the past 15 months? I've failed a lot. I've gotten upset with people. I've, I've more focused on the speck in other people's lives than the plank in my own eye. I told you before, I've had to wrestle with disappointment over various things. How have you failed? And what are you going to do with it? Are you going to be swallowed up with shame and guilt? Or are you going to hang on to the great expectations of mercy? Hang on to great expectations in times of failure. Secondly, hang on to great expectations in times of weakness. Look at verse 3. Peter says that God caused us to be born again. Notice it doesn't say, you chose so wisely and so powerfully to be born again. It doesn't say that. It says, God himself caused us to be born again. Now, let me just have you consider the imagery of a child being born. What part in the birth process does the child play? I mean, it is simply going through the birth canal. It is being moved by the mother's contractions. And eventually, it is being pulled out by a doctor. The baby doesn't do anything to birth itself. It certainly didn't do anything to conceive itself. God uses that imagery to remind us we are so weak in Adam that we don't have, have the capacity. We don't have the ability. We are too weak to actually resurrect ourselves. That shouldn't be a surprise. But then God goes on to say that same power continues to be exercised toward us. Paul, in a parallel passage to this in Ephesians 1, says that he prays with great longing that we might know how great is God's power toward us who believe. It is the same as the might of God that was exerted when God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand. If you know Jesus Christ, that is the power that is always at work in you, particularly in your weakness. What weaknesses are you wrestling with today? Do you despise them like I despise my weaknesses? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've said to the heavens, God, I struggled with this weakness when I was 16. And I'm still weak. And I'm embarrassed and I'm ashamed. I'm disgusted, frankly. Do you ever try to guard your weaknesses from being noticed by others? Because you think they'd be disgusted with you too? If you know Jesus Christ, God is never disgusted by your weaknesses. 
He's drawn to you because of them. Jesus loves being Jesus. And Jesus is drawn to the weak and the powerless. That's why it says in verse 5, by God's power, we're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. Now, it's really important you understand what's being emphasized here. What's being emphasized is God's power, not our faith. Now, you, you can do a really good Bible study, by the way, without ever knowing Greek. If you just buy several English Bibles and compare the translations. For instance, the NIV, which there's nothing wrong with that. It's just the nearly inspired version. <laughs> Some of you are with me on that. That's good. That's good. No, there's nothing wrong with the NIV. But the NIV translates verse 5 as this. Who through faith are being guarded by God's power. The ESV, what I've been reading, says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. That's huge. Which is primary, God's power or my faith? If it's my faith, I as a perfectionist am hopeless. Because then you know what I begin to do? Then I begin to wonder, do I have enough faith to be guarded by God's power? What if my faith isn't enough? What if it's strong enough? What if, what if it's not able to really be guarded? What if it can't grab hold of God's power? Now, the crazy thing to me, because again, I, I do love the NIV, the Greek couldn't be more clear. The Greek word order, Peter clearly emphasizes that God's power is his main focus. It is by God's power you are being guarded in your weakness through faith. In other words, the only thing I need to experience God's power is need. In other words, that's faith. If you simply have need and cry out, oh Jesus, that's the faith that Peter's talking about. It's like, okay, I got that. If all I need is need and I cry out, Jesus, I've got that. Because that's just me being honest with God about my weaknesses. By God's power, we're guarded, we're shielded by faith. Yesterday, uh, we had a great time out on the soccer field. We had our extravaganza, and there were just hundreds of kids and parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles. And uh, I wanted to make sure that people understood uh, egg hunts actually do have a Christian, Christian tradition. It's not just some holdover from Roman pagan days. Uh, especially in the East, in the Orthodox Church. The Orthodox priests would, would have a holy Saturday service on Saturday morning before Easter. And they would bless these eggs, and they would paint the eggs different colors to actually remind the children and the parents, the grandparents, the families of the Easter story. And so eggs that were yellow symbolized the resurrection. Eggs that were red symbolized the blood of Christ. 
Eggs that were green symbolized new life in Christ. Eggs that were pink symbolized the church, and so on. And then missionaries picked it up, and they began to have egg hunts in nations where Jesus wasn't known. And they used the same symbols, but they went even further. They began painting biblical episodes on the eggs. And the children, what child doesn't want to go hunt for an egg, right? And when the child found the egg, they were all excited. Then the missionaries would explain the Bible story, the Easter story, the Jesus story from the egg. And then the children were taught that the hard egg represents the hard stone that covered the tomb of Jesus. And when you crack the egg, that's when the roll, the, the stone was rolled back and new life, resurrection life was found within. And the children, as they experienced the delight and joy of opening the egg, they were to understand the parallel joy we have in Christ risen from the dead. But the other symbolism is as you search for eggs on an egg hunt, it reminds us that we're called to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But you know the ultimate symbolism besides the resurrection and the crucifixion of an egg hunt is we are the one that God is searching for. We are the ones that in our weakness he is drawn to. We are the ones, the New Testament tells us, that when God finds us, there's more joy in heaven than we can even fathom. You may be disgusted by your weakness. God is drawn to you in your weakness. Jesus loves being Jesus. And he always pursues the weak. Hang on to great expectations in time of failure, in times of weakness, and then thirdly and finally, hang on to great expectations in times of suffering. Look at verse 6. In this, in what? In this grace, in this salvation, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you're grieved by various trials. Uh, Peter's just being very subtle. He's not saying, well, it may be necessary for you, and it may be necessary for you, but it probably won't be necessary for you, and it probably won't be necessary for you. No, Peter's using what's called a divine imperative, uh, a divine necessity. Peter's simply saying, if necessary means it is necessary, and the great expectation you can have in all your trials is that God's in control. God ordains the same pattern for the Christian as he ordained for Christ. Suffering, crucifixion, and death leading to resurrection, life, and glory. And that's why the great expectations of the people to whom Peter is writing were being crushed. They weren't expecting that. And oh, by the way, that's why there are many disillusioned Christians. And oh, by the way, that's why experts are predicting that close to 40% of the people that were in the church pre-COVID will never return. 
suffering. Some of us are afraid of what's going to happen to our nation. If anything does, it's ordained by God. But why? The text tells us that the tested genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. People, this is so hard to say. God isn't primarily concerned with our comfort. God is not primarily concerned with the great expectations of the good life. God is concerned that we maintain great expectations of a refined faith. That as gold is tested by fire at the highest degrees of heat, that bubbles up the impurities, that God sovereignly sends trials of various kinds, Peter says, so that the impurities of our faith and the impurities of our love would come to the surface and be scraped away. It's not that God doesn't love us. It's precisely because He does that He actually sends trials where Peter says, though necessary, if necessary. <laughs> Peter's not saying it may not be necessary. He, he's very subtly saying God's ordaining suffering for you all. And then he says in verse 8, Though you've not seen him, you love him. A great expectation that is ours in times of suffering is God is building love for Christ. How's he doing that? Well, at times by taking away everything in this life that we love. Do you believe God's love for you is so jealous? that he doesn't want you to love anything else but Jesus? Now, that, that doesn't mean we can't enjoy this life. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about where is the focus of your love? I mean, like, what do you really love? And God is trying to expose that. Perhaps over the past 15 months. Over the past 15 months, I've seen what we as Christians really love. And it's not been pretty. God sends suffering to refine our faith and to deepen our love for Christ. And then he says in verse 9, that we might obtain through all these sufferings, the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. Our greatest expectations are not on this earth. I mean, it couldn't be said more in Scripture. Our greatest expectations are not for this life. They're for the next. That's why Peter says, though now for a little while, there's a larger story going on. And even our suffering is just a, a word and a clause and a phrase and a sentence and a paragraph 
in a chapter, in a section of a book with volumes. We're part of a larger story, and we have great expectations that God is going to use suffering to refine our faith and deepen our love and prepare us for glory. Ten days ago, uh, March 25th, uh, Thursdays is my day off, and I was at home, and Laura and I just had the TV on in the background, and we noticed that they started to get pretty serious about a line of storms that was coming. And uh, we kept a close eye on it. It said it was going to hit probably about one, two, three. And so, we, you know, we were reading and doing other stuff. Uh, um, and then, and then uh, we watched Channel 13 because we want the three-minute advantage. And uh, <laughs> by the way, that, that, that stuff could be really real. Uh, let me explain. Uh, so Jerry Tracy uh, says... Uh, with this pinpoint radar, uh, this is a long track tornado and it's making a beeline uh, for Indian Springs, which is where we live. And then he pointed out a couple streets and he mentioned our street. Now, this is 30 minutes in advance. It's about one o'clock. And so now at the Flayard House, we don't do anything easy or quick. We've got two horses, a miniature mule, seven adult dogs, Eight six-week-old puppies, Laurie and me, and my beloved mother-in-law, Legree. It's not going to get done in two minutes. So, 30 minutes, we're running around, taking each puppy one by one downstairs into our safe room. All the adult dogs around us, me, Laurie, Legree, the power goes out. We still got Jerry on our cell phone saying, hey, if you live in Tall Timber Road or Oak Mountain Trail, it is on you now. And sure enough, at that moment, our ears started popping. We felt this huge updraft of wind through our basement. Uh, it felt like all the air was being sucked out. It, it, we heard this tremendous noise that was clearly the tornado. And then, after about six seconds, it, it smelled like 10,000 Christmas pine candles just filled our house. It was done so quickly that I thought, we dodged a bullet. The horses were in the barn. Lori ran out, called their names, and there they were. The mule, the mule was traumatized. <laughs> I mean, y'all pray for Hobbes. The dogs were all safe. The pups were all safe. We were all safe. And then I heard Laurie say, Oh, Bob. And we looked around. And our four acres of what was our little shalom property, 50 to 70 trees, gone. I mean, gone. It was overwhelming. So the first thing he did was thank God for sparing our lives. And then we realized our great expectations are not in this life. 
Like Easter, God may resurrect our property. He may not. That's not our hope. Our hope is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, reserved in heaven for us who are being kept by the power of God through simply being in need. And God does this. People say, God didn't do that. Okay, who did? Of course God did it. Because he has a purpose. He's refining our faith. He's increasing our love. He's showing that he comes to us in weakness through the body of Christ that's been phenomenal. And even through giving testimony that this world isn't all there is. And Jesus rose as evidence to that. Will you hang on to great expectations in time of failure, in time of weakness, and in time of suffering? That's what God calls us to. Let's pray. God, this Easter, we are thankful that we're here. We're thankful that most of our loved ones have been kept safe. But God, there's also great pain here. There are parents that we have who are dying. There are friends that we have that have just been diagnosed with cancer. There are people who have lost all kinds of possessions. And Lord, we're people still struggling with COVID and mitigations and fights and disagreements and people that are scared to death of our nation and where it's heading and people that are consumed with urban versus suburban and black and white and immigration and, oh God, could we just stop and focus on the fact that we have a merciful God who offers life in Christ. God, if there's anybody here today that's never transferred their trust from their own efforts and their own religiosity to the risen Christ, God, may today be the day of their salvation. And God, for the rest of us, if we need to have our great expectations refined, we welcome that. And focus our eyes on you, your goodness, your mercy, your power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand and hear the benediction. The promise of God's love, favor, and power upon us in Christ. Receive it. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Abba Father and the fellowship and transforming power of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always.